0: and that you are so patient with us to learn it. And thank you that we are able to have this Bible study for that purpose. Lord, just bless this lesson, bless this lecture, and make it meaningful to our hearts and our lives, not just something we're reading and learning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this chapter I wanted to title Teaching Time with Jesus. I just thought this was great. Jesus is privately teaching his apostles and his disciples uh, through the parables that he was giving, and even in a storm which I thought was great. There are four main parables taught in here, and then, of course, the story of the actual storm that took place. As far as parables go, we've all heard the same definition of a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We've heard that over and over again, but I really like the way Warren Wiersbe defines a parable. He says, a parable begins as a picture that arrests our attention, arouses our interest, but as we study the picture, it becomes a mirror in which we suddenly see ourselves. It becomes a window of truth through which we see God. How we respond to that truth will determine what further God, what further truth God will teach us. So parables are used to reveal not only the truth about ourselves, but the truth about God. Jesus was not the first person to use parables in teaching. They were... Commonly used by the rabbis in rabbinical education, they were also used in the Old Testament. And the one I like the best is the one that's in 2 Samuel 12, when the prophet Nathan went to David, and David had committed the sin of adultery, and Nathan had uh, exposed it by telling him the parable about the man who had only one sheep and uh, man who had many sheep and stole the sheep from the one man. And David immediately knew what that parable meant, and it struck him right in the heart. So parables can be really good for revealing our sin. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives us four main parables. The first one's the biggest, the parable of the soils. Some translations say the parable of the sower, but the parable's not about the sower. The parable's about the soils. The setting in verse 1 starts out when Mark writes, And he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him that he had to get into a boat in the sea and sat down. The whole multitude was by the sea on the land. So the crowd was so large that Jesus was actually backed up into the water and was forced to get in a boat. So I can understand earlier on why his parents were so concerned about him, because these people were like coming out of the woodwork. And his welfare, you know, it was a concern for them. The the people, the groups were becoming enormous. So Jesus begins his parable with a command. Verse 3, listen to this, as if to say, pay attention, I'm about to say something. Very important. Verses 3 through 9. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground. Where it didn't have much soil, immediately it sprang up, but it had no depth of soil. So when the sun had risen and it was scorched, it was scorched because it had no root in it. It withered away. The other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns came up, choked it, and it yielded no crop. But the other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew, they increased and yielded a crop. Some produced 30, 60, and up to 100 fold. He who has hears, let him hear. First the seed fell beside, then the seed fell on, and then the seed fell among, but the good seed fell into, which I thought was interesting. Jesus is going to explain exactly what this parable is talking about in the next few verses. But I found it curious that Jesus used this phrase, listen to this, and he who has ears. He's not telling folk stories. He's not telling mystical tales. He's dead serious when he's talking. He speaks with wisdom. He speaks with authority. And he wanted his hearers to listen, meaning like not just listen, but do it. In this parable, he's not talking about the sower. He's not talking about the seed. He's honing in on the soils. The parable describes four specific types of soil, the roadside, the rocky, the thorny, and the good. And at some point after Jesus gives this parable, either the crowd disperses or some of them go away, but in any case, he pulls his disciples aside privately, and he begins teaching them, and they begin asking him to explain the parable because a parable without an explanation really is just nothing but a riddle. So in verse 10, it goes on, as soon as he was alone with his followers, along with the 12, they began asking him about the parable. So it wasn't just the 12 apostles, it was some of his closest disciples. He just wanted to teach them. He didn't want the unbelievers involved. So there were more believers with him than just the 12. So it's unclear how many, but they had to be believers because he was giving them the inside scoop. Verses 11 through 12, and he was saying to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside will get everything in parables in order that while seeing they may see and not understand, while hearing they may hear and not understand, unless they should return and be forgiven. This whole passage is a fulfillment of Isaiah 6-9. These people keep on hearing but do not understand. They keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn back to me and be healed. So Jesus had essentially judiciously blinded Israel because they had called his works the works of Satan. So they were hardened in their unbelief forever. The more one rejects and moves away from the truth of God, there will eventually come a time where there will be no more room for repentance. Jesus was now saying that any truth or revelation being taught by him would be given to the believers only. The rest would just get parables without any explanation. So they might as well be hearing riddles with no answers. They would be unable to discern truth because they're left in their unbelief. To me, this is a terrifying state to be left in, Hebrews 6 kind of touches on people that get close to the truth but then fall away. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened or have tasted or have shared of the heavenly gift and the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come but then decided to fall, turn away or have fallen away from the truth. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they crucified once and again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. And Romans 1 says the same thing. Similarly, that once you have been exposed to revelation and the light and have chosen to reject it and reject God, he will simply turn you over to your own desires, and your mind and heart will be darkened forever. So these people actually had, I mean, the light of lights. Jesus was with them right there in their midst. They had seen Jesus work his miracles. And yet Israel rejected, they rejected all of his miracles and even went so far as to give Satan the credit for them. So the more one's response to the light, the more light will be given and the less response to the light, the less will be given until eventually the light goes out. So that's a scary thought. Um, Jesus explains the parable to his disciples and to us in verses 13 through 20. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all parables? All parables. I think what he's saying is this parable would be the benchmark or the basis for understanding further parables. So he says, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. When they hear the word, immediately Satan comes and takes it away, the word that has been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones whose seed was sown on the rocky places. They hear the word immediately, receive it with joy, But they don't have a firm root in themselves. They're only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, because of the word, they fall away. And others are the ones whose seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who've heard the word, but the worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things, they enter in, (laughs) and they choke off the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But finally, the ones on whom seed was sown in very good soil... They hear the word, they accept it, and they bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So the four soils really represent the four types of hearts of men and their degree of responsiveness to the word of God when it's preached to them. So the word is either revealed or concealed, depending on the type of heart that man has. It will either become a source of revelation to a believer or it will become a source of judgment to an unbeliever, because that unbeliever does not receive the truth in order to be saved. Jesus is saying that the sower went out to sow. The phrase to sow actually means to spread or broadcast, like you see people doing on their lawns. And Jesus further explains that the seed being spread is the word of God, so he defines everything. Jesus obviously represents a sower, but anyone who spreads the word of God is a sower. We're all sowers. The disciples lived in an agricultural society, So they would have easily understood the sowing of seed and the care in which it required. I mean, this is farming 101 to them. But Jesus uses no adjectives to describe the sower. I thought that was really interesting. The parable doesn't say the sower who wears nice clothes or the sower who has a degree in theology or the sower who's famous. No, it just says the sower. That's you. That's me. It's anyone who spreads the word of God, the gospel, to others. The four types of soil, these four types of hearts, and their differing response includes everyone. Everyone alive on this earth belongs to one of these four groups. So let's break it down just a little bit more. The roadside soil. This soil can be best described as a footpath whose ground has been packed down so hard, almost like a sidewalk, so hard that there's really no soil to be had. These are the people who hear the gospel, but it immediately bounces back. So Satan snatches it away. It doesn't even have a chance. There's no response at all. The heart is like a concrete wall and cannot be penetrated. These are the blind and hardened hearts. A good example is Israel back in the wilderness. What have they seen? They saw all the miracles in Egypt. They saw the Red Sea parted, and they were still stubborn. That generation was stubborn and stiff-necked, and guess what? They ended up dead in the wilderness. The Pharisees, same thing, blind, and right to this day, we're going to have people that are going to remain that way, hard and blind. It's a total rejection and unbelief in the truth of God's word that causes the hardening. So this is total rejection, no movement towards the acceptance of truth. The rocky soil is interesting. This heart just has just enough soil on top of the rock. So the seed goes in and it's sown, but it springs up so quick because it hasn't had a chance to do anything. It never develops a root system because the rock is underneath. So when the sun gets hot, it's obviously going to get scorched. It's so fragile. It gets scorched. Like people say, when the heat gets hot, they get out of the kitchen. So when persecution arises, I like this part, because of the word, they can't stand up for the word. No believer would run like that. This heart is a professing believer. Maybe they had an emotional experience, maybe they walked an aisle, said a prayer, but they've never truly been converted because they still live their sinful lives unchanged, and they don't have the backbone or the Holy Spirit to have them stand up for the truth. They won't. Um, this can be seen in many of the secret sensitive churches of today, a lot of music, a lot of entertainment. It's all about the experience. They desire a supernatural experience over truth, but they only want to mention things that make people comfortable so they'll come. They don't mention things like sin or hell or judgment or the wrath of a holy God. So we must never base our salvation on an experience that's from an emotional nature because it won't last The third one, the thorny soil. This soil hears and reacts to the gospel, but is double-minded. It has one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They're distracted by worldly entertainment, preoccupied very much with money. money. Uh, This can be seen in churches that preach the prosperity gospel. They find a way to use God to their benefit, but they don't know him. A few examples of a double-minded heart in a man in Scripture could be someone like Judas or somebody like Demas, they just cannot bring themselves to leave the world, yet they try and do both. Matthew 6 says, no one can serve two masters. He will hate one or love the other. You cannot serve God and money. First John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in you. James 1.8, he who is a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, last but not least, we get to the good soil. The, the good soil is deep. It's rich. It's filled with good nutrients, able to produce fruit of various amounts. Jesus says 30, 60, and 100. I don't think that means that all believers are fighting in competition to get to 100. Um, That wouldn't be good. I don't think we really determine the type or amount of fruit. I think God determines that. He gives to us each what we need to do. Um, But all true conversion will result in some level of fruit. Colossians 1 said, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Matthew 3 said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John 15 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So God gives us, through the Holy Spirit, different works to do that produce the fruit. And it's it's done according to the person. It's different for everyone. Ephesians 2 says that, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So which soil are you? If this parable is speaking to you now, understand that God is plowing your heart in preparation for the gospel. Don't, don't stop and be sure that you respond to this call. Don't reject it. Because if you've never trusted Jesus and the death for uh, payment for your sins on the cross, I urge you not to turn away and reject Repent while you still have ears to hear. So now we're on the second parable, verses 21 through 25. He's saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure or under a bed. I understand a peck measure to be a a bushel of weight or something, but the point is you don't take a light and stick it under a bucket or put it under a bed. It's brought to be put on a lampstand, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor anything has been secret that shouldn't come to light. If any man has his, let him hear. He was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more shall be given to you besides. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has is going to be taken away from him. Jesus says a lamp is meant to shine, not to be hidden away. It is our responsibility in the kingdom of God during this church age to be a beacon of light in an otherwise very dark world. Believers are the only light the world is ever going to see. Many don't feel comfortable sharing the light with others. May, they may live great lives, but they're afraid to shine their light in fear, of maybe in fear of rejection. Some of the opposite, they have no problem talking about the gospel, but they have trouble living it out in their own lives. So we really should be doing both, living it and sharing it. Jesus says to be careful what you listen to. I guess you could just as well say, be careful who you listen to. We are to listen to only that which is filtered through biblical truth. If we're saturated with the truth, we're going to know error when we see it, right? Jesus is saying, listen to me. He says, some will be given more and others will have what they have taken away from them. I think this could say that our capacity to understand biblical truth is given to us by God and that the more truth we learn and accept as truth the more revelation of truth he will give us but the more one rejects and ignores truth as truth even the small amount that he's got will be taken away and his ability to see the truth at all will be gone it's my prayer that myself and all of us would have a greater appetite for the truth of god's word first peter 2 like newborn infants we should long for the spiritual milk the word of god so that by it we may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Verses 26 through 29 is the third parable, and this is the parable of the seed, not the sower, not the soil. This is the seed. He sa- Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes to bed at night, he gets up in the morning, and the seed sprouts up and grows, but he himself does not know how. The soil produces the crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in his sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus is describing the mysterious way germination takes place, quietly, almost overnight, hidden from the eyes of man deep in the earth. The parable says that the soil produces the crop by itself, The term by itself in the original language can be translated automaton or automatic. The only other time in scripture this word is used is in Acts 12.10, when Peter was released from prison by the angel and then he came to the gate and and, and it says, the gate opened by itself, automatic. So it just happens. This describes the work of regeneration by God within the heart of every man that's saved. We don't know how it happens. We just know that it does. We know that God causes it, Because man is said to be spiritually dead, and no dead man can get up and do anything. At least, I'm a nurse, I haven't seen it yet. But anyway, it is, yeah. Dead men can do nothing unless someone brings them back from the dead. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, God, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. So we cannot bring it about our own spiritual birth no more than we brought about our own physical birth. We weren't there deciding that. So I thought that was a very good truth about germination and regeneration. I think it's a good picture. Verses 30 through 34 is the fourth parable. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? Here we go with another seed. It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil... Though it is smaller than all the other seeds that are on the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And with so many parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable. He was explaining everything, I love this part, privately to his own disciples. He was teaching them about his kingdom. The mustard seed Mustard seed was and still is the smallest seed, yet, when planted, can produce a tree over 10 feet tall. Jesus defines the mustard seed right here as the kingdom of God. And if we look back at the church and how it really started in the beginning, it was Jesus, it was his 12 apostles and some disciples, then 120 in the upper room at Pentecost, then 500 who witnessed, 500 believers who witnessed Jesus after his resurrection from the dead when he walked on the earth. 3,000 were saved at Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. Another 5,000 saved at Peter's second sermon just prior to his arrest. And these numbers, mind you, only include the men. They don't include the women and the children. So there's the church now sprouting. We see the church now today in our own time reaching international across the globe. But it started with very small and humble beginnings, just like the mustard seed. Now the tree is like the church, huge, its branches serving as a shelter for all nations. And it will continue to grow in spite of any opposition because the more the church is persecuted, the more it grows. Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So there's never going to be an end to Jesus' church. Verses 35 through 41 is not a parable. It's a real story. I call it In the Eye of the Storm. And I'm going to read it, read the verses. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was sitting in the boat teaching. He stayed in the boat, and they went in with him, and other boats were also coming along. There arose a fierce gale of wind, and waves were breaking over the boat, so much so that the boat was already filling up. But he himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And immediately the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that the wind and the sea even obey him? So this storm was not like any old thunderstorm we get here in Florida. It was really like a tornado, like a hurricane. It was like a washing machine. And being fishermen, these, these men knew the Sea of Galilee. They were very familiar with these storms. These storms came without any warning, and they didn't have radar. So they couldn't look it up. They just came, and they just had to be ready. These, the, the boat was being deluged so much with the waves, and it was, they couldn't bail fast enough. Jesus was so exhausted from teaching the multitudes and doing everything he did that day, he was out like a light on the cushion. The men began to panic, which would be my normal response, but... They knew that unless something was going to be done quickly, they would all perish. They woke Jesus with the supposition that he didn't care for their safety as they were perishing. Jesus wakes up, speaks the words immediately. Everything is silent. Jesus asked why they were afraid and then asked where their faith was. But when I read this the first time, I thought, oh, the disciples, I can't believe this. But we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples because this was a learning lesson for them. This storm was God-ordained. Jesus was giving his disciples a lesson in faith, using the storm as an instrument. He does the same thing for us. And they were finding out that he wasn't just the Lord over sickness. They had seen that. He wasn't just the Lord over demons. They saw that. But now they see he's Lord of nature, and not just nature, the very nature he created. They asked each other, who is this? This, of course, is a rhetorical question. It didn't require an answer. They realized that God himself was in the boat with them. And they were terrified. This reaction is a proper one to have as they were in the presence of God, and they knew they were sinners. Jesus was displaying both his humanity in being exhausted and sleeping and his deity in calming the storm. And, you know, you read a lot of stories about people seeing God go into heaven. Um, They're relaxing, talking, laughing. But, you know, that's not how the Bible presents the experience because Ezekiel, Daniel, Daniel and John all fell as dead men onto their faces When in the presence of God, as the scripture says, who can stand before the Lord and live. So there's so much in these verses. And I could think of three principles that we maybe could take away from all this. Number one, we are not responsible for the response of man's heart to our presentation of the gospel. That's God's job. If we see little response, it's not because we weren't clever enough or didn't use enough really long words or we weren't persuasive. But like the farmer, we sow the seed and the rest is God's work. 1 Corinthians 3 says, I planted, Paul said this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. There will be hard hearts out there. Don't be disappointed if very few people listen, because Jesus himself said very few will be saved. Only God can prepare the heart of those who will accept the gospel. So it's just our job to spread the message and leave the rest to the Lord. In sharing the gospel with others, though, there is an important point to be made we need to be careful that we do not substitute the gospel for our testimony or our emotional experience. As important as our testimony is, we all have our personal testimony, and I don't mean to diminish that, but it does not have the power to save. The only thing that has the power to save is the Word of God, Romans 10:17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of God, not hearing from the Word of your experience. So when we share the gospel, the gospel must include all the components of the gospel. We can't water it down so it's more palatable or make it sound good. Sin must be confronted. God's holiness must be revealed. And repentance must be urged. And lastly, as the disciples feared the storm on the Sea of Galilee, we too are going to face storms. Maybe not in the literal sense. But we're going to face storms in our lives, whether it be death of a loved one, Illness, financial distress—all of these are God-ordained storms, just like the one on the Sea of Galilee. Each storm will be personally designed for each believer, both to test our faith, to grow our faith, and to bring us into maturity, like Christ. Just like Christ in the boat, He will be sure—we can be sure that, and confident—that He will protect us in the storm and bring us to the other side. Why? Because He's sovereign and He's compassionate. And so I urge anyone here today who has not trusted Christ for salvation to put their trust in his death as payment for your sins. It's, it's a gift. It's free. It costs you nothing, but it costs him everything. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful chapter, Lord. And we've got so much out of it. And sometimes we just read over it briefly, and we we think it doesn't mean anything. But we thank you, Lord, for just allowing your Holy Spirit to teach us more and more about it. And Lord, may everyone go home today with your word on their hearts, and may we continue to ponder it in Jesus' name. Amen.